Thanks for joining me this week on the show. I am so excited to have you join me for this conversation with Amelia Nagoski, doctor of musical arts and co-author of the book, Burnout, Completing the Stress Cycle. We have a fantastic conversation about stress, about burnout, about the way that it tends to affect women in general. But don't worry, guys, there is some great information in this podcast to help you support the women in your life, but also to recognize the ways in which stress is impacting you and how we can break out of some of these societal concepts that have been influencing us, ways that we can recover secret. It's not self-care. There's a lot more to it. We are a hive mind and a lot of support comes from the communities we create and be a part of. And there's so much more in this conversation. Thank you for joining us. Listen in. Living in a stressful world doesn't mean you have to give up on happiness. Instead, you can shift your perspective of stress and discover how to live your life in flow. Welcome to Happified. I'm your host, Susie Vine. Join me for inspiration and interviews with folks who are shining their light in the world in the areas of positive mindset, health, and wellness. I'm so happy to have you here. What if you could maximize your meditation practice with a tool that maximizes your time and attention with images and affirmations carefully selected to boost your positivity, to help you integrate your intentions into your subconscious? I have a special gift available for you. Visit happifiedlife.com and click on the Start Off Happy button to take a look at the phenomenal technology created by Positive Prime that uses neuroplasticity to literally wire your brain for more happiness, higher productivity, better relationships, and greater success. Head over to the happifiedlife.com page to start off happy with Positive Prime. Enjoy it free for 30 days. Welcome back. I am so happy to have you with me this week for a conversation I've been looking forward to for quite a while now. I am joined this week by Amelia Nagoski, DMA, stands for Doctorate of Musical Arts, and she is the co-author with her sister Emily of the New York Times best-selling book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle and the Burnout Workbook. Her job is to run around waving her arms and making funny noises, generally doing whatever it takes to help singers get in touch with their internal experience for the benefit of audiences everywhere. She lives in New England with her husband, one cat and two rescue dogs and joins us from the sound safe barns there in beautiful New England. Thank you for joining me. It is my pleasure. So I've been looking forward to this because I was turned on to your book by a dear friend of mine, a mother of three boys and homesteading mama. She's a super busy woman and she connected with so much in the book. And as I read the book, it's on my bookshelf and I knew I would probably do this. I have this many post-it notes in the book because I resonated with every other page. (laughs) And so for women everywhere and for the men who support us, I can't recommend it strongly enough. There is so much here that speaks to our experience in dealing with stress and in our modern lives, but also in burnout. And as a stress coach, I have spoken to burnout with business teams over the last few years. And I thought with authority and confidence, I could say burnout is a work-related stress. And this really transformed my perspective. I knew it wasn't the whole story, but 
especially in the way that women live our lives and tend to meet the needs of everyone around us, human givers, we might be able to come back to that too in the conversation, that this really fills a void and I think is very affirming while recognizing we've got a lot to navigate. So thank you for your part in it. And it's also a very personal story too, because of your own personal experience, Amelia, with stress. And and would you have called it burnout, that episode that you experienced when you were in your program? I definitely didn't call it burnout at the time during my doctoral program, but I my undergraduate degree is in education, music education, and there's a lot of talk about teacher burnout in teacher training. So I kind of knew what burnout was, and honestly, I made it five years as a classroom teacher before I did, I mean, I became like the textbook example of a burnt out teacher. The average for teachers at the time was about seven years. I think it's shorter now, especially since the pandemic, teachers are dropping like flies. My my understanding of what burnout is definitely changed and grew as we did the research for the book, which as you say, did come directly out of my own personal experience of burning out during my, my doctoral program. And the reason it doesn't just address workplace burnout is because that was the information I needed to know that like, it wasn't just the teacher burnout stuff that I'd been trained for in my undergraduate degree, but, um, but the, I mean, workplace burnout comes from unmeetable goals and unceasing demands. And the thing is that we don't just have those in our workplace, we have those everywhere we go, from the grocery to- store to social media, the unceasing demands and unmeetable goals are always before us, not just at work. Truly, truly. And and I think as women, And sorry, guys, and if you feel this is relevant, we're not excluding you from the conversation, but typically in gender assigned roles, women do a lot of the caretaking, a lot of the home, you know, making, I don't even want to say, but keeping the home together and humming along while everybody goes out to work because how many households can even be single income households these days? So it definitely adds up in these unmeetable demands. And Emily explained so beautifully with her PhD in public health, how that stress cycle hasn't kept up with our current lifestyle. Basically, the short version is, you know, we were designed to meet the stress, to run away from the tiger, to escape or not, but to escape. And then we discharge, we're able to literally metabolize those hormones of stress so we can come back to balance. But when stress is every phone notification, every deadline on the calendar, every challenging conversation with a boss or someone at home, we're never done. We never discharge that stress. And so that's that unlocking unlocking the stress cycle, as I understand it, right? Being able to find closure and completion. Yes, exactly. As we can. um... Luckily, the idea of like fight or flight has become more widely known and we're all pretty much familiar. Fight, flight, even like freeze and fawn are starting to get their own press. The thing that people don't talk about is if you're in fight or flight, that's not like just a bad thing that you have to get out of and you you take a long, deep breath and you just get rid of it. That is not the way that works. It doesn't just disappear. You can put it in a little box and ignore it for a while, but those chemicals did not just magically go poof out of your bloodstream. You need to use them up somehow, communicate to your body that it is moving from danger to safety. And and luckily there are a lot more ways than just literal fighting and fleeing that can communicate to your body that it is safe and to return your like whole chemical balance back to a state of safety and calm and readiness. Yes. 
And, and it takes some doing, it takes some carving that out and making a priority on your well being. <laughs> yeah. The, it does take the doing of things, which is seen as a hurdle by a lot of people, but the main hurdle to doing the things is not the doing of the things, because you probably even already know the things that will make you feel like you've relieved your stress, like you're not all huddled down trying to just survive, but rather thriving and ready to do anything. You probably know what does that, you know, maybe it's physical activity, although it's not for everyone. Maybe it's just a good night's sleep. Maybe it's some time spent daydreaming. Maybe it's, you know, hugging a loved one or kissing your best certain special sweetie, or maybe it's creative self-expression dancing or singing or carving maybe it's connecting with animals or hiking in the woods or like me you probably already know what it is so the doing of the things that actually complete the stress response cycle and as you say metabolize all of that stress response are not a mystery uh the the barrier comes when we have to recognize we're not already doing those things that we already know are so good to us. Like, I mean, there's mysteries in the book, like sleep is good for you. Like maybe you already know that. And you're like, thanks. I'm glad I bought this like $10 book to tell me that something. Yeah, no. But the, here's the peer reviewed research and science. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yes. Here's the 27 pages of references that prove this is true. But at the same time, like we already kind of know, but we aren't already doing it because we feel that there is this barrier that it's not just the doing of the things but the believing and understanding that we especially as women or people who are not born into shapes and sizes that inherently give us power in the united states specifically but in overall the white supremacist patriarchy that exists globally at the moment if we're not given that power we're supposed to be like apologizing for who we are mm. and we aren't entitled to time and energy and resources for our own sake so now the world has decided that what we need to manage our stress is self-care do it yourself if you have stress you can't manage go get a manicure a pedicure get out of my way and just go go deal with it yourself and then come back and then drain yourself dry for the comfort of other people's convenience and right? that was literally the medical like recommendation that you received when you were in the hospital yeah they Physically told me to go relax these yeah go home yeah. and relax yeah yeah i was working three part-time jobs and a full-time doctoral student commuting 65 miles each way and the stepmother to three teenagers. So relax was not a thing that was like, no, that rest was not a possibility for me. Go home and relax. A, how? B, what does that mean? C, no, that's not possible. You're um, stressing me out with this yeah, suggestion. Exactly. So what I needed to learn was that stress is a thing that happens in your body and you need to take the time to deal with the stress in your body in a separate process from dealing with the things that caused your stress. And also that the things that were causing me stress were real. We have a whole chapter called The Rigged Game, which is about recognizing that patriarchy is real, that like systems of power tend to not gravitate toward feminine bodied people, not gravitate toward, well, I mean, there's a whole list of, of, of intersections of oppression that, you know, so that almost no one ends up completely avoiding some kind of oppression. Like all of us face some kind of pressure, no matter what kind of body we're born into, 
And that does not come because it doesn't come from the body we're in. It comes from the society we're in. And I, Mm -hmm. as a doctoral student in conducting, in particular, conducting is one of the most male-dominated fields still in existence today. Not only is it male-dominated in conducting, but in music academia is still heavily male-dominated. And the idea of a of a feminine bodied i'm also autistic so i'm neurodivergent and trying to fit myself into this doctoral program was not about the challenge of the work itself the academic work itself was a pleasure to me i i loved that work but appeasing the professors was a whole separate job that no one no one puts in the syllabus right that you know you have to write three papers and present one class and 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 also you have to make sure that you don't insult or intimidate <laughs> your professor right right don't encroach don't you know suggest they might be wrong yeah don't claim entitlement to <laughs> what you are good at right like i have a master's degree in choral conducting from a school called westminster choir college which is one of the most prestigious conservatories of music in the world has been for decades and no one else in my none of the professors that i was working with in this context had any degrees in conducting at all so when it came to conducting and i'm trying to just say here's some stuff i know about conducting as a person with a master's degree in conducting not to mention 15 years experience actually doing it in the world that was really insulting to them that was really disempowering to them that i would assert and claim my expertise even though it was my expertise and not theirs they would still want to think that they would know better than me about this other like and that walking that line with these people who genuinely have my career in their hands they could just kick me out of their program and that is the unmeetable goal and unceasing demand that that eventually put me in the hospital twice Twice, not once, but twice. twice. Because just because we know the thing doesn't mean then that we give ourselves permission to take yeah. the time and to if ask you're like for me help. And you wait too long for that, then then it adds up. And yeah. uh, as you begin to learn and to intervene on your own, it might be too late to avoid another hospitalization. But it's never too late to start because I mean, uh, that was, I was 30, early, my early thirties and I'm in my mid forties and I have not burned out since. And it's not like the world has gotten easier to live in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is true stories. This is true stories. We've, we've been through a lot <laughs> yeah. recently. And, and this is when we need more than ever these tools. And so, as you were saying, you know, the idea that the solution to burnout, to managing our stress relies simply in stress care, right? We need to blow that up and say, no, there's a lot more to it. So, so, and how, what are some suggestions that you have? We, we talked briefly about the ways that you can address stress in your life, but in terms of finding that support and the solutions to help you recover from burnout, what are some suggestions you have there? Oh, it turns out what the research says is the primary way you're going to combat the burnout that comes of unceasing demands and unmeetable goals because the problem with unceasing demands and unmeetable goals is you end up stuck in the stress cycle all the time you're constantly having initiations of the stress response over and over from the world telling you that you're not good enough in all the myriad ways women are expected to be good enough Uh, and in order to protect yourself from that you can't do it alone you need a bubble of love It's the nice, fun, silly name we gave it in the book, but the research is very serious and very clear that what it takes to survive as a human is 
is is a bubble of love of people who care about your well-being as much as you care about theirs who will protect you from the outside messages telling you that you aren't pretty enough or thin enough or rich enough or educated enough that you don't speak the right language that you aren't the right denomination or the right religion as the systems that in power demand you to be right or even just that sort of social media keeps suggesting to you you should have a white kitchen why is your kitchen not white all the best kitchens are white you don't have a white kitchen you know white kitchen you have to have a white kitchen to be deserving of love and that message comes to us not because we are stupid or gullible but because we jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist who describes humans as 90 percent chimp 10 percent bee we're a we're a hive species we we thrive in in herds and when you're in the herd and the lion comes where's the safest place in the herd it's the middle it's the middle yes. deep down in our evolutionary knowledge of what safety is is the understanding that we have to be in the middle of the herd to be safe those of us who live on the fringes because our bodies or our socialization or our neurological differences don't allow us to be in the middle our bodies know that we're not we're not safe and logistically in the world that exists today it's physically logistically true that if you are not part of the white thin symmetrical tall educated rich primarily rich cis-bodied and rich people then you are you you don't have protection you have access to literally poorer health care so your biological safety is at risk because you aren't in the middle of the herd because you don't conform to the socially constructed ideal and the only way to to tell that part of your brain that you are safe that you are in the middle of your own herd is to have those people around you who will tell you no 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 you deserve to take the time to go for a run. You deserve to have a half an hour nap. You deserve to go, you know, splash in the water for a while or ride a horse or pet your dog or just like go hide in your car for five minutes and cry as hard as you need to. You deserve to do that. That's good for your health and it doesn't mean you're weak. It means that you're human and we love the humanity in you as much as you love the humanity in us. It, so basically, the short version of that is that the cure for burnout is not self-care. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Mm -hmm. mm, truly. And and as you're explaining that and, and saying, you know, we need a person who gives us that permission until we can give ourselves that permission, but especially the reminder when we're so in the thick of it that we can't see how much we're willing to give other people that permission and not give it to ourselves. And so it's even more powerful to have someone in that space who will come to the mat for us and say, no, you deserve a timeout. Go do what you need to do. Scream, smash a pillow. Yeah. Rage in your car for a few minutes and, mm -hmm. and do claim what you need to claim for yourself so that you can unplug from that cycle and discharge the stress and, and restore. And, and I feel like a lot of us, again, because of all the reasons that you've described, we feel like we have to be in the middle, but we gauge ourselves as being fringe because we don't measure up. We don't move fast enough or work hard enough and all of that BS that gets loaded up. We don't think we're worthy of taking that time, of staking our claim, or planting our flag and saying, I need to take that 
time off from work or I'm just taking time off from work. I don't care if it's paid, right? <laughs> like I have right. to do this for me. And, uh, and I think- how, how could we possibly claim that worthiness when we're constantly literally being told yeah. that it's not ours, that it doesn't belong to us, that we don't deserve it? By such manipulative marketing too. So not only the voices that have, you know, held the mic for so long, but also by the marketing, which has gotten even more clever and insidious and reaches us now on so many different platforms. And begins to reach out and and take even more powerful people as its targets. So men are being targeted by like weight loss advertisements more and more than ever because, you know, weight loss industry moguls were like, oh my God, there's like 50% of the, of the market that we haven't yet tapped. And so unfortunately they're becoming victims too. And yeah. more to the point that when like, for example, say you're a, a thin educated white man and everything in the world tells you that your that power comes naturally to you but say you've ended up in a place where you're a white educated thin man and you know cis bodied male dude and and you haven't received power you haven't received what you thought you were entitled to according to everything that you see around you and now you feel a kind of like rage like you've been lied to and and you you have been lied to because because your whiteness and your thinness and your masculinity don't entitle you to anything, but the world sure does tell you you're entitled to that. And, and that can become enraging. And this is how we get a lot of the kinds of violence that people perpetrate. So like men themselves suffer from this system and just as much as women and all of the gender spectrum, regardless of gender identity expression, gender identity or expression, I should say, the, it's, it's, it's not just like a one-sided, look, the oppressed are oppressed. It's those who are told that they're supposed to be given power also need to be helped to be given a richer understanding of what success is, of what happiness is, of what of what it takes to be a fully complete human. I mean, also the other side of that, where you're, you know, a thin, educated, rich, white man, and you you meet your child for the first time, your partner maybe gives birth, or you adopt, and the first time you hold this child in your arms, and you have this overwhelming flood of love and tenderness, and the world tells you you're just supposed to be a big, macho dude. You're not supposed to weep with joy, and you're not supposed to, like, tickle and play and be friendly with your child and express that kind of like tender loving playfulness and gentility but so when men are denied access to that it also stifles something in them just as it would stifle something in a in a woman or someone of any gender yes all of these norms that have been defined and assigned and perpetuated. And and you were talking too, as you were talking, I remembered the section in the book, which I found so powerful. And again, backed by research and science, there's evidence about the whole body image complex, the corporate interest that has grown out of telling us that we are supposed to be thin, which is completely unfounded. Health yeah. is defined by health, not by a BMI scale that supports corporate interests. And yet, because the okay, the whole story is in the book. Worth the read for that alone, although the whole book is tremendous, yeah. but I'm yeah. just going to make sure people know this is in here too, because I yeah, found it so enlightening. When you look at the history of like how weight became a health measure, it had nothing to do with the research into health. It had to do with board of people, seven of nine 
of the people on this commission worked and profited directly for the weight loss industry. Seven of nine of them profited directly from the exploitation of people's expectations about health. And they decided that this ratio of height to weight, that they gave this label of healthy or overweight, or ob those, in those labels were invented by nine people, seven of whom profit directly from the weight loss industry. It's the BMI chart is literally weight loss propaganda. And yet it is used in healthcare mm -hmm. services to determine who gets healthcare and what quality of healthcare they get. During the beginning part of the COVID pandemic where respirators were low, remember that? When there weren't enough respirators and they had to choose who gets a respirator and who doesn't. People of size, their weight alone was enough to put them on the second list of like, nope, we don't have a respirator for you. We're gonna save this thin person's life instead. When that is not, based in any evidence or science of any kind. Someone who is thin-bodied may just as likely have diabetes or heart disease or all the things we associate with, you know, being fat as disease. None of those things are actually true. <laughs> so people of size were more likely to die in COVID, not inherently because they carry more fat on their bodies, but because their access to medical care was inferior. It makes me so mad. It makes me so mad. I want to like, I want to like smash some stuff. You've like, got your intense coral conducting like em emotion rolling. I do. Well, and that was something that I found really interesting in, in reading. And as, as I was boning up to prepare to talk to you is as you shared, you were taught to express emotion in one area, in one venue that was appropriate. And yet here's the rest of life. And how do we do that there? Yeah. I say a lot of times that I learned how to be a person on the podium. I'm, I have, you know, explicit conducting training and a conductor's job is to embody the composer's intention, whatever the affect, emotion, idea, or story in the music is, it's the conductor's job to stay in that throughout the performance or the rehearsal of the piece so that the ensemble can feed off of that and then and then pour it out over the audience so learning how to recognize and feel and then allow out emotion i i have explicit academic training in how to do that and i needed it because i didn't know how to do it in real life like i didn't even think emotions were like a real thing until the end of college, have I mentioned that I have autism? I was not diagnosed until my <laughs> mid forties, but but at the time I was like, I'm not sure emotions are real. So I'm like, <laughs> that's not <how>? for me. <laughs> yeah. So so how are you supposed to be a conductor and embody emotion when you aren't sure that they're real? So luckily, I went to some schools where I was, you know, taught, hey, feelings are real things that happen inside your body, and you. You know, you can show them what, what is <laughs> it real? Yeah. I um, think as, as a member of Generation X, I think I, I resonate with that. So many of us, I, I heard on a TikTok meme, like, oh, you want to cry? I'll give you something to cry about. Right. Like there yeah. wasn't space for that in our homes, which were suddenly usually oh. dual income households. Right. There wasn't room for that understanding yeah. or space or experience in the kids. We've got other stuff to deal with. 
And so... Yeah, my situation, I think one of the reasons that Emily and I were able to write the book the way we did, um, we had kind of an extreme situation growing up with like some problems with like addiction and mental illness in our immediate family where you really don't talk about feelings in that situation. And that small scale of the house we grew up in existed within the larger scale of a society that really thinks that, you know, sleep when you're dead and right. and and crying doesn't solve anything and and boys don't cry and yeah. that of course we all recognize that's the large scale message that's going on and then some of us live in like a microcosm where that's even more extreme and some of us live in and or create for ourselves a microcosm that is working against that larger kind of uber narrative some people <laughs> Do you know what some people grow up in households where they're like, they learn how to feel their feelings and like they're supported and shared? Did you know that this happens for people? It's magnificent. <laughs> and it's possible for all of us to create that for ourselves. We just have to recognize that the lie we're getting from some external source is, is we, we can choose not to, not to live by that. We can unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. That is a that's that's perfect. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I love to share as I'm speaking with people at health events when I get to be one-on-one -on -one is I have a chart of emotions that Yale created. And they're using this emotion scale in classrooms so that grade school students are able to define how they're feeling. Where would we be if we had this vocabulary as children? <laughs> I know. I was a college professor. I taught music 101 and all of my students agreed. We all talked about like, is there emotion in music? And all of them agreed that emotion and music are somehow related. So yeah. I'm, I have to give them, I, I do, I put a chart on the screen and, you know, talk to my students about like how to talk about emotion and there's a plus sign, right? And the up and down is intensity, high or low. And then the side to side is the valence, positive or negative. And like having to parse out with my college students in my music class that a negative emotion isn't a bad emotion. It's just one that makes us want to move away from the thing we're perceiving and a positive emotion wants us to move toward the thing that we're perceiving and and understanding emotions just in the, just just in this most basic way. It's one of the most important things I taught in my music class. I think I'm sure it, it impacted their lives. To be oh, able God, to so. put it in that re relationship. Yeah. Oh. Someone, someone said to them out loud, feelings that might feel unpleasant aren't bad. They're not inherently bad. They're just, they just, you know, we tend to want to move away or toward a thing that might be new. And then I made them practice. This is the, this is the main point of everything I taught in that class is like to notice whether you want to move away or toward the music that you hear and then just make the decision not to go anywhere and just to keep listening and then try to teach them the skills to discern like what they're hearing. Like, you know, is it loud? Is it soft? Is it duple? Is it triple? Is it major? Is it minor? Like all those skills are separate skills that can only come after you recognize that hmm, my brain wants me to move away from this music because that will completely remove your ability to perceive or discern anything. <laughs> 
detailed or meaningful and you think about having a conversation with someone if if your brain turns on its move away response you're not going to hear anything that person is saying so i always thought that mm. what i was really training them to do was have a conversation with a stranger but using music is a tool for practicing that skill i love that that is a powerful tool I thought That's so. That's really tremendous. And and so one of the things that you both beautifully describe in the book, and, and as I understand, it comes from Emily's first book, Come As You Are, which is that emotions are tunnels. And so that feeling, right? You know, do we want to move towards this emotion or away from it? No, no, I'm not going in there. I'm pretty sure. I'm going to leave that sealed right up. (laughs) Yeah. This is the default response. When you're taught that feelings are wrong or bad or don't really exist, then we just kind of like avoid allowing ourselves to notice that we're having that emotion. We deny that it's actually happening. And that means that we're not moving all the way through them because emotions like the stress response and everything in your body is a cycle right your digestion is a cycle your respiratory system is a cycle your circulatory system is a cycle everything about the human body is meant to come and go to ebb and flow wellness is not a single state of being or a single state of action wellness is the freedom to oscillate through all the cycles of being human which means that yeah you need to be able to notice the thing and then move all the way through it instead of just hiding and cowering there in the darkness thinking that you're stuck here forever until the scary thing goes away there is there's actually if you allow yourself to notice and turn toward the difficult thing it it will ebb and then it will flow it will come and then it will go and then it'll come back again and then you just do the same thing where you turn toward the uncomfortable thing and it gets easier and easier to to be comfortable with your discomfort and eventually end up with a with a large capacity to feel your feelings and not get overwhelmed or flooded. Mm, and I think that I hope that brings people a lot of hope, right? Is that it gets easier the first time it might feel impossible. Oh, yeah. I can't sit in that space. I might not come out of it, right? Because we haven't experienced that the completion of that cycle, but not only that it becomes easier, but then that we have the capacity to handle so much more. Yeah, this is this is the most difficult time in someone's journey toward, you know, burnout recovery or stress management is right now because it only gets easier. The more you do it, the easier it gets. You learn to listen to your body and it'll take you to the next thing that it needs. And it won't happen all at once. You have to go step by step. But once you take one step and learn to trust the response of your body over the messages you're getting from the outside. So as a very literal example, to learn to listen to your body, to tell you when it is healthy, what it wants to eat, what it needs to eat, what weight it should have, what shape it will be happy being. When you learn to listen to how your body feels instead of look at how your body appears and use the measurements of some outside source, then you can start to feel like recognize, oh, my body is telling me things. And now I can tell that it wants this other thing. It wants me to get more sleep. It wants me to, you know, spend less time on my feet whatever it is it wants me to exercise more maybe yeah but it only comes from learning to listen to what your body tells you that it needs and will use to thrive instead of listening to what other people say yeah yeah learning to turn up the volume on our own 
sensory experience rather than letting every all of that other input drown it out because it, it it's hard to tune into that voice initially. So again, as you said, right, it, it gets easier. So what Emily and I have discovered now, Emily and I are identical twins born on the same day within the same 15 minutes and raised in the same household. We shared a room for most of our childhood. We are identical twins. But our experience of noticing our own internal sensations could not be more different. Emily has always been very attuned to her internal experience. She would know in high school that going for a bike ride, she could come back and feel better. And so she would just make herself go out for the ride and then come back and just feel better. Like, and I never had any, any connection to, we're identical twins. We were raised in the same house. And our experience with our capacity to listen to our bodies is so different that when Emily started putting phrases like, listen to your body in the book, I'm like, we have to explain what that means to people. And she was like, why? You just do it. And I was like, no, 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 you, no you don't. Now, on the far end of the scale of the spectrum is a condition that is medically known as alexithymia. It's Greek for no words for feelings. It's not just about having no words for feelings. I have alexithymia. I'm, I don't even know what I feel. So the idea of like listening to my body seemed completely meaningless. It just didn't mean anything until I started actively working on building that skill. And it turns out it's a skill that you can develop. Some people are more inclined towards it than other people. Emily, it's it comes so easily to her, so naturally that it overwhelms her sometimes and it limits her capacity to do things. She's actually very lucky because she can't overwhelm herself or work too hard because her body will just be like, girl, no. <laughs> Whereas I can push myself so far past my limit thinking I'm fine just because I am, I have a kind of a, you know, a deafness to my body's messages. But luckily it's, it's a skill you can learn. It's not just a talent. That's so powerful. And I'm sure, again, like as someone who it, it comes normally too, I won't say that I get a gold star in receiving messages from my body. I can definitely appreciate it's a skill that builds over time, but to recognize that it can be a completely foreign concept. There's messages that come from me, not only in. Yeah, that's so powerful and, and hopefully really affirming to people who listen and be like, all right, so it's not just me. It's, it's the thing. It's the way that some of us are wired. Yes, yes. And and people who like who really feel their body telling them, no, you must stop, have probably been shamed at some point in their lives for not being able to push hard enough, for mm -hmm. not being able to, you know, play on the big boys team or to, you know, if you can't hack this schedule, then then you're just not good enough to do this kind of work. Cause because that's the world we live in where like we play stress Olympics, where it's it is superior, morally and ethically superior to be able to work harder than everyone else around you and to, you know empty yourself until you have nothing left where that's considered a good thing. And so people who, whose bodies say, no, we can't, we don't have the capacity and they can hear that message and, and they come to a stop. Those people are lucky to preserve their own health, but also they get, you know, chained kind of by the people who are still like, oh, I can push harder. I can push harder. See, you're not pushing as hard as me. I win. Right. 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 The, the ones that are still subscribing to how many extra hours did I work this week? How many hours of sleep did I miss? How many meals did I eat at my desk? All of this. 
and and suffering for our art which is yeah. something else that being in the creative space and myself having worked in theater and all clocks count down to opening night <laughs> the lights might go up while the set's still wet but the audience doesn't know and so it's all fair right in in getting that thing to curtain open yeah. and and so I'd love to hear your experience or or if there's anything you can share to people who are like oh in order for my art to have merit, I have to have my blood in it. Like it has to come from my suffering. It's okay. It's part of the process. That's what I learned, right? This is this is what yeah. a lot of us have been taught in conservatory programs too. Yes. 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 We're oh. told if we love, no, by people who aren't involved in these fields, they're told it must be so nice to do, to make music for a living. I mean, and it is, it is wonderful, but it's, it's not what people think because <laughs> people who do creative stuff as a hobby discover that creative self-expression is a means of completing the stress response cycle. And a lot of kids discover, oh, when I'm in band, I feel like I feel so like ready for anything. I feel so surrounded by my my people. Right. And and then they, they start getting professional training and they're they're told that like. If, if you're not going to practice six hours a day, there's someone else who will, and that's the one who will get that gig. And you just need to like be grateful for any opportunity you have, and you better work your ass off to get it. And that is toxic, you know, and the kind of language mm -hmm. we use about flutes and violins and sopranos and these which are now associated with, you know, female bodied players most consistently are, you know, a dime a dozen and, you know, way too common and there's too many of you and you have to be this whatever and at the same time singers are told that they have to care for their instrument and like hydrate and get plenty of sleep and also be this like bitch who's gonna like fight against everybody else at the same time it is it's bad and about i know a lot of people with degrees in music at bachelor's master's and doctorate and only about half of them actually work in music anymore which is not a bad thing i don't think that like i don't think that the thing you get a degree in has to be the thing that you make your living at i think an education is an education and what you really learn in school i mean college is not meant to be job training college is meant to be higher ed that makes your mind grow and makes your soul grow and empowers you to be guided by your curiosity that's what college should do for you it's not job training so i think a degree in music makes you just as good a computer programmer as you know maybe a degree in computer program with the job training will be useful. But like, I think in terms of like your, you know, what makes you a value to society is still there. That's a tangent. We were talking about conservatory training where we're told that we have to like burn ourselves out in order to be successful. And if we're not suffering, then our art isn't worthy. That's uh, yeah. And then what happens when you become successful as an artist is and that that's you are what got you there. Yeah, and that's what got you there. And now the thing that f used to feed your soul is now putting food on your table. Your relationship with it changes because it's your job now, right? It's no longer this thing you do to go out and like express the glory that is your soul. It's now the thing you do to go like fulfill a requirement for someone else. You need to play this role in this way. You need it to be, you know, this kind of program for this kind of audience. And it's no longer a personal expression. It's now like labor that you do. 
that is also wonderful and you love it, but you know, labor and you start to think, oh, I'm not inspired anymore. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I have lost my, my musicianship, my artistry. No, 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 none of that's true. None of that's true. You're just as good. You're just doing it as a job now. And maybe you need to find another outlet for the creative self-expression. So I know a lot of singers who are fantastic bakers. And they, they're very careful and they experiment because they're like making another thing and they're finding that like sense of lifted, elevated comfort and readiness for whatever comes next from, you know, brownies or maybe from knitting or, you know, other kinds of creative self-expression. Um, I, I specifically recommend doing something you're bad at. If you need to find another venue of creative self-expression, find something you can't turn into another side hustle because you're not good <laughs> enough at it and you can just do it for the pleasure of doing as opposed mm. for the, the need to create a product that someone else has decided it's good enough or not. Mm, I love that. To really, really take yourself out of that. Like this is one more thing that I can master. And and it really lands with me too, right? That That childhood experience. I'm sitting in the band and I'm surrounded by my people. Suddenly we found a herd that we can be in the middle of. And then to have that completely flipped and everyone around you is in competition with you because there's only so many seats in the orchestra, right? It's so, yeah, we, we do. We have to find ways to, to get back to the things that light us up. Thank you for that. Because I think a lot of people, and I know, I mean, I worked, as I as I was telling you before, backstage in the dark. It's much easier to make a living in theater if you're happy with being a technician than a performer, right? And yet I've watched just about everyone that I studied with go into other professions Yep. because it's so easy to get drummed out of those creative professions. And at the same time, the people who enjoy it as their side, as their hobby or as their passion outside of work, they can sustain it for so much longer because they are able to let that be their happy space. Yeah. And it doesn't bring that burden of livelihood with it. Exactly. When it's not the thing that you rely on to, you know, pay your bills, singing, dancing, acting, painting, all kinds of creative self-expression are so good for you. But when it's your job, it's another story. It's just a, it's just a different dynamic and you need to recognize it doesn't make you bad at your job or inferior or unready to take on what everybody throws at you. It just means that, uh, you know, your relationship with that particular activity is different. So if you're a ballet dancer, you know, go, go do some ballroom just for fun. Mix it up, make it fresh. Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation that we've been able to have today because first of all, there's so much available within the book and I hope everyone reads it. There's a discussion guide that goes along with it. I'm thinking about starting a book club. I haven't ever before, but I think it's this important like to come together to share experiences and to get that validation and have that support where people say, yes, you're worth staking your claim and saying, I'm going to unsubscribe from this. I'm going to take this time. I'm going to see if I can get a fresh perspective, right? And restore myself. I think it's a powerful movement. Yeah, we do have discussion guides on the burnoutbook.net website. We have also discovered that our 80,000 80, word book with 27 pages of references, not everyone like needs all the science and they're like, I don't need the receipts. 
just give me what I need to get results. So for those people, we are, we have written an official workbook and that will be coming out next year. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. I'm excited about it. It came out really good. <laughs> well done. Well done. Well, when it's something that really speaks to your soul. And I think too, when you can see how important this information is, right? We're subverting the dominant paradigm. We're saying it's not enough for boys to be strong or girls to be pretty. That's not where the success lies, but in expressing yourself and being able to be in communication with your body. So you can really be healthy, not just fit some paradigm of what health should look like. Yeah. Not just like unsubscribing from the larger narrative, but finding a new thing to subscribe to and some other people to share it with you. Yes. I love it. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting us know about the workbook that's coming out. Very excited to, to share that. I'll have links in the show notes for information. And certainly I'll update that when that workbook is available too. And for yourself, I love to ask guests. So a lot of the time we talk about stress, because that's really what I'm fascinated with. Is there something that you love to go to when you need to hit reset for yourself? Uh, there, I have found several ways of doing like short, intense things that absolutely reset. The thing that helps me the most that is just the perfect combination is horseback riding because it's not other humans. It's just me and an animal. And there's the physical activity of it. It's physically, you know, intense, but also there's the connection with the animal and the, and the communication that happens in the combination of physicality and emotional state. It's, it's like the, it's the perfect storm of stress reducing activities for me combining things largely speaking there is a magic trick that's good for everybody which is the combination of moving in time together toward a shared purpose like going on a march together or like singing together at a rock concert for me it's not all those people for me it's me and a horse and i'm bad at it so i can never turn it into a side <laughs> hustle last time i wrote i fell on my ass Oh, I was God. bruised for weeks, but a uh, man, yeah, it really does reset everything for me. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you touched on that too, that shared human experience. And we have been sorely lacking in those these last few years, but coming back together for music, for performance, for entertainment to again, be in community and to share that emotion, work through things together see that shared experience, especially I'm, I'm just a sucker for live music. Of course, theater is great when I can get it, but to see that feedback loop, the performers get it from the audience, the audience gets it in unison from the performance. That's a really beautiful thing. So yeah, here's to connection. Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me. Wishing you marvelous holidays. Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about living life with less stress and more flow, visit happifiedlife.com. Subscribe on your favorite player to catch the next episode as soon as it's out. Sharing really is caring, so please rate and review the show while you're there. And if you know someone else who would love it, please pass it along. Until next time, my friends, keep on shining.